how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. After a series of short films, director Brad Silberling was hired under contract like his eventual mentor Steven Spielberg. Thanks to his style and attention to detail in the television work, Silberling was asked to direct the film Casper, which was the first character sync dialogue with CGI characters. Since his first film, he's also directed movies like Land of the Lost, A Series of Unfortunate Events, Moonlight Mile, and City of Angels. In this interview, Silberling talks about avoiding being pigeonholed as a director, finding your passion as a creative, his inspiration to humanize a war criminal, and the importance of making dramas for grown-ups. In An Ordinary Man, an infamous war criminal and former general played by Ben Kingsley spends his life on the run from international authorities when he suddenly moved to a new hideout. There, he develops a relationship with a maid who looks after him, but when he discovers that there is more to her story, he makes a decision that will drastically change both of their lives. So I was uh, 11 in uh, June of 75. My father was working actually at uh, the network at ABC at that time in Century City, California, in L.A., and I had seen some television promos for this film coming out, so I bugged him to take me first day, first showing, and drop me off. And he went upstairs to work. I went in to see Jaws on a gigantic screen at the Plitt Theater. And my world was just rocked. I mean, first of all, I on an experiential level, I was alone. And it was the first screening. It was about 11 in the morning. And it was not sold out at that point. So my row was fairly open and empty, these big, spacious airline seats they had. And I, by the time little Alex Kintner got attacked on his raft. I literally looked around, didn't know if I was going to make it. <laughs> and and that was kind of exemplary of the experience. By the time the film was done, I just thought, who did that to me and who has that job? I felt a storyteller in every frame, more so than I'd ever quite experienced in watching movies. And it compelled me. I mean, I, I went home that night, took my dad's Super 8 camera out of his closet and never gave it back. I started making movies. Um, it was that sense of both visual storytelling, character in every frame, character influencing camera movement and shot selection. It was this melding of 
of the world. And obviously one knows the stories, the, the script that was sort of arrived at night by night, um, Stephen and his gang having dinner and essentially improving and trying to script out the next day's work. But again, the net result was this visceral sense of humor, sense of shock, sense of, uh, of, of just, just story in, in my face. And so that, 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 that sent me off. So what, what was kind of the transition between that inspiration? I know you did a lot of television shows, and then you, your first feature was Casper, I believe. What, what was kind of the story between, you know, as a kid and, and getting to that first feature? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I had a sort of strange early relationship from a distance, in a way, with Steven Spielberg. I, I got out of graduate school at UCLA. I had made a short film. We all make short films sort of as our calling card, and and I was fortunate enough that there were executives from both the television and the feature side at Universal who saw the film and decided they wanted to kind of dust off the old term deals that they used to make in the 60s and 70s. And that was really how Steven got started. He went under contract at Universal. So I was sort of, it was an antiquated thing, but they decided to try to put me under contract. So I went under contract, and that was to cover whatever I did, whether it was television, movies, writing, directing, producing just because I was young and cheap. And it was an incredible opportunity for me to, A, not have to wait tables and to get to go and focus on this thing that I loved. It so happened that television, especially at the Universal lot at that point, um, as well as elsewhere, was sort of really the blowing up. So while I was trying to get a first screenplay turned into a movie, uh, my first opportunities came in television. Stephen Bochco, who just passed away this week, was really my sort of very godfather in that respect. He and the fellow named Greg Hoblet, who was his director of many things, had seen my short. And while I was under contract at Universal, they were at Fox, but Universal was wise enough to say, hey, let's lend them out because you'll only get more valuable. And so I did about three years of television uh, directing, which was an incredible experience. And um, in that three years, I did a show called Brooklyn Bridge, which was Gary... David Goldberg's look back at his youth in Brooklyn, very cinematic show. And um, Steven Spielberg called Gary and said, I watched your show last night. Who did that? So I got a very funny call from Gary saying, you're going to get an interesting phone call. And so sure enough, I finally met about three years in. I went and sat down with Steven, and who was incredible. First of all, because he, he said to me, before I could say anything, he said, okay, let me tell you about your last three years. <laughs> He relayed to me exactly what I had been through, and he smiled. He said, I know, I, I lived the same exact experience. He said, but I, what I saw last night, I could tell you were making a movie. You only had a half an hour to do it in. I'd like to help you make a, a full one. And so he, again, another fairy godfather, so the Stevens, I call them. So Stephen uh, really took me under his arm, and that's how Casper happened. Um, he He believed that even though I had no effects experience, he believed that I was technically savvy and a storyteller and that the character character was going to be what would win the day. And so he was crazy enough to go throw me on a $65 million movie. The studio could do nothing but watch because he was Steven. And um, we made the movie and made them happy. So, And this is like two years after Jurassic Park. Um, was was Casper one of the first big like CGI movies? How did you how do you view that now versus the way things have changed so drastically? Oh yeah, well yeah, Stephen. While well, he was shooting Jurassic, 
um, after he shot it after I met him, but before we made Casper. And so they were, as he said, there were 54 CG shots in, in Jurassic, but as he said, none of them had to do monologues. <laughs> they had to roar. And so we were really biting our nails because we were going to head off and do the first true character sync dialogue expressive CG characters that had ever been done. And again, in a weird way, what you don't know, you know, won't kill you. So you just dive off and assume you can do it. And so at, the movie took two years. I was up and up and down with the animators and up in San Rafael at ILM constantly because I was I essentially acted out every part of Casper's performance <laughs> so that I could really keep a hand uh, and, and then sat with the animators at their SGI machines. And um, so it, it and it, what's interesting today, even with motion capture, that's we were, we tested a little early motion capture, and it wasn't it wasn't happening. There was it, it, everything felt too underwater. It wasn't quite translating. So motion capture, obviously, the Andy Circus work you see is incredible today. That's evolved, but even then, there's still a lot of hand touches that go on to push expressions and to adjust. You don't just slap the mocap suit on and throw it on the character, and you're done. You still have to go in and and adjust, but but it, th- that's the leap today for sure. So let's kind of jump forward. So so after Casper, you made movies like A Series of Unfortunate Events, Land of the Lost, but you've also made very serious movies like Moonlight Mile and now An Ordinary Man. What advice do you have for young directors who are trying to find that balance and not get kind of pigeonholed into one genre or another? Well, it's a great question. I, I There was tremendous pressure after Casper to go into just essentially – you know, Xerox, that success. Uh, I remember at the time the Jetsons was coming together, Warner Brothers and my agents at CAA were just hammering me to take the film. But I I think your passion as a filmmaker goes to the story you want to tell. And uh, you, it, listen, if I had been passionate to go make the Jetsons next, hallelujah, it would have been terrific. I was not. And I had read Dana Stevens' script for City of Angels at that point, and I was bound and determined because that was the story I wanted to tell, and it was going to express a level of humanity that I thought I could do better than someone else. It, you, you always, as a storyteller, have to believe you know a secret, and you are determined to tell that. If you stay true to that, it'll take you into vastly different types of material. It, that's why, like, City of Angels to Lemony Snicket to uh, Moonlight Mile, those can those curves can happen because those are the stories you want to tell and it will keep you from getting pigeonholed. Um, that said, there's no harm. If you, if there's one story you want to tell again and again, and you have the passion to do that, fantastic. And if they keep paying the freight and we'll make your movie great. I, I just happen to, I, I just happen to have of interest in very different characters. They're often very intimate movies though, even on a huge scale, you look at uh, if, when you look at series of unfortunate events, the most compelling moments to me are the most intimate. They may be dark, they may be fraught, but there's still characters clinging to each other, trying to get out of a situation through their wits and their compassion. So I've read that you read an interview or an article, a uh, human interest piece that inspired you to start writing this new story. What kind of made you want to, you know, create this story and humanize this war criminal? Well, what's interesting is I, I you know, and thank God the Marvel Universe beautifully handled sort of mythological bad guys. I sadly think what we see in life in the real world is that, you know, evil 
as a human face. It's, it's, it is human beings who sadly have dementia and flaws and um, that do perpetrate the worst acts that, that we see. And as a storyteller, I think I wanted to find the just to meet out my own justice. I wanted to find the vulnerabilities of one such sort of monster and basically just get him in the ribs because of that. In this case, it was a need for human intimacy. I had read about a couple of war criminals who were like hiding in plain sight in Belgrade, Serbia, uh, being moved around like chess pieces and was very struck by the idea of huge personalities that are, are essentially having to be kind of hidden under the bushel, but that still have a need to command and to, to interrogate and all of those sort of traits of theirs. So I was, I was, I had, yeah, I read a New York times piece about, about 10 years ago that was just talking about these loyalists who were sort of moving these men about. But it was when I, I had time later and read that in one case, Rocco Mladic, that his daughter after the wars, uh, when she was in her twenties, read a credible account of his actions and committed suicide with his own service pistol. And he refused to take responsibility for it and believe it. So that's that was the moment that I realized that, that I wanted to tell a story about somebody trying to sort of vicariously have a relationship with his own daughter that he had cost, that he had he had corrupted, but that he wanted to do so almost by coercion, by taking somebody hostage, and yet in the end only recreating the same law. So that was the story that in my mind, there was a fable within the circumstances that I was reading about that to me went to the need for human connection and that that need for human connection can in the end sort of fell a giant. Um, forget all the other fancy weapons and people searching for them. It's, it's the human beings can, can be taken down by, by being haunted by their own laws. So the, the main character, Ben Kingsley's character, the general, he's definitely got some strong opinions on the past versus the present, especially like youth culture. Um, but there's never any, I feel like most movies like this might dive into the flashback at some point. Did you, did you kind of avoid that on purpose or did you just not consider it at all? Yeah, quite, no, I quite consciously didn't cho- chose not to. Um, because I, I wanted it to be, I wanted to be in Tanya's shoes and obviously those shoes take a different turn later in the movie, but initially I wanted to just have to be with this character and, and answer my, for myself the questions, as he says, you know, is he in, in fact the devil? I didn't want to front load it with just sort of um, war images or um, images of carnage. I wanted it to be, frankly, more difficult, more complicated for the audience because I'm I meet a man like this. He might be my next door neighbor. Is he? Is it? Is it true? Is, is he capable of having done those things? And I think, in a weird way, as a storyteller, it would have been too easy for me to just again front load uh, a predisposition for the audience. So that was yeah, it was a very conscious choice um, and a tricky one. So I don't want to give away too many details, but can you talk a little bit about, you kind of already mentioned this, but the trust between the two main characters, uh, specifically when he's letting her shave him, that seems like a really trustful scene. Can you just talk a little bit about that dynamic between the two? Yeah. I mean, the movie is a sort of a series of interrogations. When you think about it, they one by one, it's his, his 
delving and his prodding and, and, and trying to poke and find out who is this young woman, I think, because like I say, he, it's, it's the opportunity he never got to really have with his own daughter. But there is a moment of submission where he, he's so in command and he's so, you know, he, 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 for the first time she walks in the door, he essentially kind of tears at her dignity. But there's a moment where that table turns and he, he needs to submit. And that's where that, that and, and it was meant to be a moment where you know she could uh, take a, a straight razor and achieve a different end. And so we ourselves aren't sure as audience where she's going to go. But that that that's exactly it. It's it's the moment the, the the lion lets somebody put the hand in the mouth and not take the hand off. Um, and that's because of the growing intimacy over the course of the movie. Um, and then obviously things go from there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I think we're coming up on time. Is there anything else you want to say we didn't already discuss? No, I, I just I really appreciate the conversation. And I think, you know, these days, as a lot of directors say to each other, it's very hard to make movies for grownups. And so it, this one was one that I, I was really determined to get to make. And the cast is remarkable. And so I hope people get a chance to see it. Um, and again, uh, just to be able to, to go off and to see it, to see an adult drama. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.